you have your Bible, uh, please turn over to Revelation chapter 2 as we continue our summer series in this last book of the Bible. Uh, Today we're turning the corner into really the heart of the series uh, as we begin the seven messages that Jesus is delivering to seven different churches uh, in Asia Minor, which is today known as Turkey. These seven churches were on the western coast of Turkey, right there kind of in a odd-shaped sort of an oval circle uh, in relationship to each other. Uh, And Jesus has usually something good to say and something challenging to say to each one. And uh, we're going to see that this morning for sure. Now, it just so happens that the first one is this uh, church at Ephesus, which we had just spent all spring long talking about how Paul wrote to Ephesus. Well, just to give you a time kind of uh, chronology, uh, Paul was writing about 30 years or so before this message. Uh, So Paul was writing in the 60s A.D., and then John received this revelation in the 90s A.D. So a lot can happen in 30 years, amen? Have you all experienced that in your life? Uh, I know I have, and um, a lot can happen in 30 years. And so Jesus addresses the new situation that has developed in the city of Ephesus. So please hear God's word this morning. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false." I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent." Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Amen. Well, there are lots and lots of beautiful churches in the world. Do you agree with that? Uh, I'm talking about church buildings here, lots of beautiful church buildings all around the world. In fact, uh, there are some here in the United States, but they don't really compare at all to some that you see in other parts of the world, like in, for example, Europe, where you can go all around and see uh, churches that were built in 900 or 1100. Uh, Think about that, how old that is, and them having to build it all by hand, all the stone carvings, they had to literally get a chisel and chisel it out. It's really incredible. Uh, There are places you can go that they'll say, people have been worshiping here on this same site since 500 AD. Wow. And yet, when you visit some of these places, I don't know if you ever have or have ever watched uh, documentaries about it, it's not always true that there's a vibrant worshiping community still existing in that beautiful church. In fact, maybe more times than not, There's not a vibrant worshiping community in that church. Uh, Perhaps the church, in fact, there are even ones you can see that have been turned into nightclubs. 
There are churches that have been turned into office buildings, apartment buildings, and and those that are still churches, uh, you go by during church and maybe there's 20 people, 15 people in a huge cavernous church that could hold thousands of people. And maybe besides that, the church is full of all kinds of what we would call idols, you know, statues of various people that candles are being lit to. All kinds of things have gone wrong in some of these churches, even though the church outwardly still looks very beautiful. Well, I want you to notice what Jesus says to Ephesus down there in verse 6, because that's what he's talking about when he says to Ephesus, if you don't return to your first love, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. Uh, Tim reminded us last week as he preached on the end of chapter 1 that the lampstand stood for the life of the church, the spirit-given spiritual life that exists in a real vibrant church. This is why you can have a beautiful outward building and even a, you can actually even have a very active church full of all kinds of activity and yet there's no spiritual life within it because Jesus has come and taken away the lampstand from its place. It's sobering. In fact, this message and the one at the very end, the last message at the end of chapter 3, are the two most harsh messages, the two harshest messages that Jesus delivers to these seven churches. In both, he says, if you don't correct it, you're done. And both of them deal, I would say, with basically the same issue. Here he puts it as, you've left your first love, therefore I will come and remove your lampstand. In the last one, he says, you're lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. You're just lukewarm. And so I'm going to, he says, spit you out of my mouth. In other words, what we get this morning is a view of the importance of love to Jesus within the church. And the danger that every Christian and every church is in of leaving their love for God behind, which is really the heart and soul of the life of the church. No matter what else you have in a church, if you don't have a genuine, heartfelt love for God, as it's described here, a first love for God, you don't have much. Listen to what John Stott said in, in his book about these first three chapters. He says, The church has no light without love. Only when its love burns bright can its light shine. Many churches today have ceased truly to exist. Their buildings may remain intact, their ministers minister, and their congregations congregate. But their lampstand has been removed. The church is plunged into darkness. No glimmer of light radiates from it. It has no light because it has no love. You see, the church today, like the church of Ephesus, he says, has a work to be done, a fight to fight, a creed to be championed, but above all, it has a person to be loved. Above all, the church has a person to be loved with the love we had for him at first, a love undying. If you look at your bulletin this morning, here's how I want to give this to Greater Hope Church today, okay? Because I believe we need to hear this message too. Look at your, at your bulletin, you'll see an outline. First of all, what is first love? What Jesus calls the love you had at first. What is that? Secondly, why do we abandon it? Or how do we abandon it? And then lastly, how can we return to it? What is it? Why do we abandon it? And how can we return to it? So first of all, what is it? Well, I love how he describes it. You can see there in verse 5 and also in verse 4. He describes it as the love you had at first. 
Uh, the old King James Version famously translated it, your first love, which I love that phrase. You're, you've left your first love. You've abandoned your first love. And I think that, that gets across what he's trying to say here. Uh, it's love as it is in its beginning stages. Which there's something, well, we might even call it magical. Not in a literal sense, but there's just something really amazing about love when it first starts. Uh, think about a wedding. Uh, I, as a pastor, I get to have a very special seat at a lot of weddings or a special place to stand where I get to be very close to the bride and groom. And so I pick up on some things. Uh, here's what I always notice as they share their vows. Number one, they're nervous, <laughs> terrified. And, and like you can hear their voice trembling. And like most people can't see it, but I can see the shaking of the hands. And <laughs> when they get the ring, it's like, you know... <laughs> Uh, it's really funny. I have to kind of stop from laughing and smiling too much because I remember myself. I was a mess up there crying and everything else. You know, I lost it uh, from nerves. But the second thing I noticed, and this is probably the more important thing, I really believe them every single time. Like, you know, and I realize not every one of them, every marriage is not going to work out, right? I mean, some of them don't end very well, but at that moment... There's something about the way they love one another at that early stage that when they say those stupendous things that they have to say to each other, like, I will give you everything. I am yours and you are mine and death to his part. And I don't care if you're sick or healthy or rich or poor, I'm in. I really believe them. That they just have this sort of heady sparkle in the eye. At that early stage of first love, you know what that's like. You probably experienced it. Most people, when they first get married, do experience that. It's young love. That's what Jesus is talking about. Now, he's not saying that love shouldn't mature over time. He's not saying that marriages always have to stay at that high level or that our relationship with God always has to stay the way it was when it first began in every sense. But he is saying that there's something there. there there's a... There's a core jewel there that was especially there when we first met Jesus that we ought to fight to maintain even years down the line of following and walking with Jesus. Because that jewel is the number one thing that Jesus looks for when he comes to visit the church and inspect it. Which, by the way, again, hearkening back to last week, what Tim said, remember Jesus is walking among the lampstands? In verse 1 of our passage today, it says, These are the words of him who holds the stars in his hand and walks among the golden lampstands. And what that meant was Jesus inspects the church. He's here today. He's, he's really here. And he's here to inspect you and he's here to inspect me. Well, great question. What is he looking for? What is he looking for this morning? Is he looking for outward show? Is he looking for entertainment? Is he looking to see that the people are happy? What is he looking for? The number one thing he's looking for is their first love in the hearts of my people. Is the fire still kindled? And if it's not, what can I do, Jesus is saying, what can I do to rekindle it this morning? Because the number one value for God is that. 
A couple of weeks ago when I started the series uh, there in, in chapter 1, remember I read to you from Song of Solomon? Remember that? And you might have thought that was weird, but I'm going to do it again. Because the Song of Solomon is so good. And not only does it talk about the way that God feels about his people, but the Song of Solomon also talks about the way God's people are supposed to feel towards God. And this is beautiful. I mean, let's listen to a few of the things that the woman in Song of Songs says to her husband. And this is just a taste of what God is looking for from us. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, she says. For your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is like oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is as strong as death. Jealousy as fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. For, a man, for if a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. That's the heart for Jesus Christ, that when he walks among the lampstands and he comes to church inspecting the fruit, that's the fruit he's looking for. Does your heart cry out like that? Does my heart cry out like that? Oh, Jesus, set me as a seal on your arm. Kiss me with the kisses of your mouth. Your love is stronger than death. Oh, Jesus, if I were to trade my love for you and your love for me for anything on this world, whatever it is, even if it was all the wealth of the world, I deserve to be despised because I have made an unworthy trade. Wow. Do you see why Jesus is looking for that? Because it's beautiful. It's glorious. It's fitting. It's fitting, and we'll get there more towards the end of the sermon, but it is fitting. And the reason it's fitting is because that's the way he loved you. And that's the whole point of Song of Songs is he says this kind of stuff, and then we say it back. I mean, he is all in, and therefore we are all in. And when Jesus is looking over your life, he wants to know, are you still all in? In the Jeremiah passage we read earlier, God said about Israel, on the day when I brought you out of Egypt, you were all in, and I loved it. Uh, this is great. Uh, right before the Ten Commandments were given, what did Israel say to God at the foot of the mountain? Whatever you say, we will do. Now, of course, that didn't work out, right? And it often doesn't work out in our lives, but man, what a heart that is. And how important it is to have that heart. To be willing to come to the Lord and say, God, whatever you say, I'll do it. Whatever you ask of me, I'll give it. Because I love you. With that heady love of first experience. That, that first young love that happens when you fall in love. When you make lifelong commitments to one another. And yet oftentimes we give to God mere nods of the head. Don't we? We often give God just little, tiny, fervent feelings here and there. We give to God a good deed here, a good deed there. And really what God is looking for is a sincere, wholehearted, total, eager commitment to him. And that is impossible without a, a love on fire. A love on fire in the heart. So here's my question this morning. Listen to this question. 
What is the present state of your soul before God spiritually? When Jesus looks into your soul, and I want to tell you, he does. He sees. He sees mine. What does he see? Does he see the love you had at first? Perhaps this morning he sees you never had that love. You haven't had that love yet, and you need it today. Perhaps he sees you had it, but it's cooled. Perhaps he sees you've abandoned it, like he says here to the Ephesians. Well, we're going to talk about what to do about that, but first you've got to see it. You've got to kind of try to see what he sees and understand what it is he's looking for. That's the first thing. What is first love? It's the beginning stages. It's the full commitment. It's the sincere, wholehearted devotion. Love on fire. Now, secondly, uh, how or why do we abandon it? I mean, if, if this is what love is, this is what Jesus is looking for, if Jesus loved us so incredibly, why in the world would people ever turn away? I mean, why would the Ephesians ever abandon their first love? After all, remember what Paul said to them? The very last words of the letter. You probably, probably don't remember, but here's what he said. Blessed be all who love the Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. That was the, literally the last words of the letter. And here we go 30 years later, and they had stopped loving Jesus with a love incorruptible. How does that happen? Well, let me give you an analogy. The human heart is kind of like a garden. It's like a garden. When God first comes to our hearts, when we're dead in our sins, before we ever believe in Jesus, he finds a garden with no good fruit. He finds a garden with thorns and weeds and poison in it. But by his Holy Spirit, he comes in and he uproots it. He puts in new and fresh and lively soil. He plants good crops. But, hang on, he not only plants good crops, but he leaves some of the corrupt weeds still there underneath the surface. And part of what happens in the Christian life, the reason I say our heart's like a garden, is because as we're beginning to bear the fruit that God is looking for in our lives, out of gratitude for God, we still have to contend with the thorns and thistles and weeds that come so natively to our sinful hearts. And if we don't contend with those weeds, it's like a garden. If you don't beat back the weeds, what's going to happen? It'll take over, and it won't take very long. Uh, you've got to be out there. You've got to be out there regularly, consistently, or else the weeds are going to take over without fail. Without fail. It takes a lot of work. And the same thing with guarding your heart and keeping your heart. It turns out there is still in the Christian's heart, let me, let me hear, hear this, in the Christian's heart, there is still a force that draws us to turn away from the living God. Octavius Winslow said it this way, There is nothing more humbling to a believer than to recognize this, that after all that God has done for him, there should still exist a principle in his heart to lead him to alarming departure from God. Alarming. Remember the hymn, Prone to Wonder, Lord? Prone to Wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And that's such a true thing. And that's the whole point of the Jeremiah passage we read. Even, I mean, Israel standing at the foot of the mountain. Lord, we will do everything you tell us to do. No sooner had the Ten Commandments been given and Moses had been gone like a month. Literally a month, y'all. And they were breaking some of the 
top two or three commandments that God gave. Their, their love had cooled. <laughs> Why? Because of exactly what I'm saying. It wasn't that some of them weren't real Christians or real believers, right? And it's not that we're not real Christians or real believers if we tend to wonder. It's just that people tend to wonder, even Christians. Uh, and God, in, I think, in some ways, leaves those weeds there so that we would be continually humbled. Continually humbled by this fact that my heart is not unreservedly, undeniably, always just simply pointed to God. If it's going to be, I've got to actually work towards that. I've, I've got to actually apply myself towards the means of grace, the, the, the regular, ordinary things that God has given me for me to do to build up my faith, or else the weeds are going to take over. And so Jesus, I mean, look at what he says there in verses 2, uh, 3, and 4. He says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles. You found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you haven't grown weary, and yet I have this against you. You've left your first love. Notice, um, some of the things he's commending them for are in the past tense, and some are in the present tense. All of those things are good things. That's why he's commending them for it. All of those things are actually signs of the true love they had at first. Some they had continued to do. Some they weren't doing anymore. Nevertheless, even though they were continuing to do some of them, Jesus knew there wasn't any love behind it. And this just reminds us how subtle this whole business of the weeds are. How subtle it is. Uh, if Satan can't get you from doing what God's called you to do and can't get us from doing what God's called us to do, he'll at least try to get us to do it heartlessly. You hear that? If he can't keep you away from obedience and love and loving obedience, he'll at least make it unloving obedience or hard-hearted or cold-hearted or just rote kind of obedience. Why? Because again, the one who walks among the lampstands is looking for love. He's looking for spiritual fruit. He's looking for other things besides love, but this passage is about love. That's the first thing he's looking for, first love. And he knew the whole world might not have known. In fact, we know from early church fathers and church tradition that the church at Ephesus was famous around the world. In fact, it was considered one of the greatest churches of the world. Think about this. It was pastored by Paul, Apollos, Timothy, and then the apostle John. That's quite the lineup of pastors. It, was no, it had a reputation around the world as being the church that exercised discipline. People, as he says here, those who are evil, you rejected them from the church. You expelled them if they didn't repent. Uh, it, it was a church that kept their doctrine right. You tested those who said they were apostles and you found them false because they didn't teach the right things. I mean, this was a church that was known for being straight as an arrow. And yet Jesus saw that they had given in to the natural growth of the weeds in their hearts. The same thing can happen to us. If it can happen in Ephesus, it can happen anywhere to anyone. Don't you agree? It can happen to any of us at any time. 
In fact, that word abandon is just a really picturesque word where he says you've abandoned your first love. It means you've left it behind. It's not that you lost it like it just slipped out of your hands accidentally. You fumbled your first love. It's that you abandoned it. It was You left it laying there and you moved on. Well, where did you move on to? You were following and chasing that other principle at work in your heart, which is the principle to depart from God. The principle to that it's working always in our hearts to cool down the love that we have. Now you might say, well, how do I know? Okay, how, how do I know if I have lost or abandoned my first love? Let me real quick just give you some things to think about, okay? Just really quick, and I'm just going to list these. And they come from a man named Octavius Winslow, who wrote a really good book about this, which I, can, I have right down here. If you have a question, I'll show it to you after service. Here's what he said. Um, are you shunning conversation with God? If yes, in other words, are, are you shunning prayer? Are you shunning Bible reading? If yes, your love is cooling. Secondly, are you thinking of yourself more as a slave than as a child of God in your daily obedience? If yes, you're starting to abandon or have abandoned your first love. Uh, when bad things happen in your life, do you immediately think hard thoughts about God rather than, oh, the Lord, what, the Lord is loving me even through this? Instead, do you immediately think, how dare God? Your love is cooling. Number four, uh, are you doing your duty but with little delight? If yes, your love is cooling. Five, uh, do you feel less tender towards the Lord? In other words, are you less sensitive, less sensitive when you offend him, less careful to not offend him? Six, is Jesus less glorious to you than created things? Do created things capture your heart more than he does? Seven, is your love for other saints, other Christians cooling down? If your love for other Christians is cooling down, that means your love for God is cooling down. And eight, are you less interested in his cause in the world than you are your own cause? I know I went through those quickly. Again, see me after if you want those in more detail. I'll show you the book it came from. But I think those eight questions are brilliant questions for every one of us to ask. And, and actually, I don't think many of us could ask all eight of those and say no on all of them. Because, again, the heart is a garden. The church is a garden. Continually, it's a war between the seed that God has planted, the Holy Spirit's tending, and this other principle, which is driving us to abandon the Lord. All right, that's how we abandon it. Now let's look thirdly at how we can return to it. And this is so important, especially as we come to the communion table, because if there is anything in the church given as an activity to reignite your first love for Jesus, it's this one. And so here's a little preparation for communion. Uh, notice what Jesus says there in uh, verse 6 and following. Or excuse me, verse 5 and following. He says three things. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. That's the first thing. Then he says, repent, second thing. And then thirdly, he says, do the works you did at first. And then he gives a warning. If you don't, I will remove the lampstand. And then he gives a promise. If you do, verse 7, I will grant to you to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. 
So here's Jesus doing two things. He's telling us the step-by-step of how to return to our first love every day of our lives. And then he's given us profound reasons, profound motivations for continually doing those three things. So let's look at the three things first. Remember from where you have fallen. This is critical. Um, Have you ever, well, I I don't even have to ask this. Have you ever changed in some way in your life? Maybe, Maybe physically, maybe your hair has grown and you didn't notice how much it had grown until you looked at an old picture of yourself. Or in my case, how much you had lost the retraction of hair, you know, getting sucked back into my scalp, you know, until you look back to an old picture and you realize, wow, okay, really changed. And one of the things I notice as I look at pictures is how fast I lost my hair. You know, you know, about 21, 22 years old, just really rapidly started losing it. And I didn't realize it as it was happening. I kept styling it the way I used to style it. I was one of those guys who just didn't know, didn't notice. And so it was all like patchy, looked terrible. But I didn't notice because I didn't, I didn't remember where I had fallen from. And this is why this is such an important thing. As a Christian, every day you ought to remember where it all started between you and Jesus. You ought to remember where it all started. Remember the thrill of the heart when you first understood you were forgiven of your sins? Remember that? Remember when you first said, God, whatever it is, wherever you'll send me, I'll go. Remember how exciting that was? You should never forget that. Why? Because when you forget that, it's hard to see how in subtle ways you've left that. Uh, Sometimes, like the frog in the kettle, we just get used to new ways of feeling and thinking. And so Jesus says, remember, go back, look at the old pictures, bring out the old photo album between me and you. Rehearse those things so that you could come to the end of yourself, which is what the second word means. Repent. Come to the end of yourself. Recognize that life your way ain't going to cut it. If it were left up to you and me, we would not make it to heaven. Weeds would completely overtake us and would choke out everything that Jesus has ever done in our lives. But praise be to God, he hasn't left us to ourselves. And so what repentance means is turning away from me back towards God and what he can do in my life, what he has done in my life through Jesus. Repent, he says. And then thirdly, do the works he did at first. Simply start doing again the things you used to do when you really loved Jesus. You say, well, what if I do them and I don't have heart in it? Don't wait for the heart. Start doing them. Remember, repent, and start doing them. And guess what? I believe when you build the altar, the fire will come down in Old Testament terms. When you set up your life and say, God, I'm doing what you call me to do because this is what people who love you do. And you're doing it, remembering what it was like to really love God, turning from yourself, turning back towards Christ. Trust me, you might wait for it for a while. You might wait for it. But the fire will come, which is the reason why Jesus follows this up by saying in verse 7, to the one who conquers, to the one who keeps doing this, even though it's hard, 
I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Yes, he's talking about that tree of life. The one that was in the Garden of Eden, the one that they were allowed to eat, which gave them courage that God was going to give them eternal life. But then they weren't allowed to eat it anymore because they had left their first love. That tree, the one that we've never been able to eat again since that day. Yet Jesus Christ is the only one in all the world that can stand before us and say, come back to the tree of life, back to the tree of life. Now, how in the world can he say that? How can he say that? Because Jesus, after he had given this meal and went out to the Garden of Gethsemane, willingly took the tree of death upon himself. That's what he did. That's what he was doing at the cross. He took the tree of death. He took the tree that those who abandoned love for God deserve to take, even though he had never abandoned love for God, so that he could give the tree of life back to people like me and you. Now, let me tell you, the human heart is like a piece of charcoal. It's like a garden I told you before. Secondly, it's like a piece of charcoal. Can a, a piece of charcoal can burn, can it? Real hot. Real, it can cook up some good stuff. Can a piece of charcoal combust of its own accord? Nope. Can a piece of charcoal light if it's here and the fire is at the door? No, the, actually the only way to light charcoal is to put the fire right down in the middle of it. Right down in the midst of it. Well, let me tell you. The cross of Jesus, what we're about to celebrate and remember, and what we are, the Jesus that we're about to commune with right now, is the fire. He's the lighter of our lampstand. And he comes to us today like little pieces of coal. And it may, may be that your coal has cooled. It may be your coal has never been on fire ever in your life. And this is the day you're going to get your first love. Praise God. Wow, praise the Lord. But no matter where you are, here's what you need. You need the fire of the love of Jesus Christ who did not count heaven something to be grasped but instead let go of the tree of life to get the tree of death so that you could get the tree of life. I mean, that kind of love is the fire that needs to fall down into the coals of your heart to set you on fire again. And so Jesus comes to Ephesus and he says, look, you've, you've left your first love even though you still have a great reputation. I know what's true about you, and yet here I am. I'll still give you the tree of life. Come to me. Come to me. Repent. Remember. Do. Love me. And you'll find me to be the same kind of lover I always was, the lover of your soul, the one who willingly gave it all, even to death itself, to bring you all the way in. Amen?